Hey, let's go. Here we go. I'm glad you like each other. That's a good sign in the church. All right, let's pray. Here we go. Happy Reformation Day. God, our Father, life of the faithful, glory of the humble, happiness of the just. Hear our prayer. Fill our emptiness with the blessings of this Eucharist, the foretaste of eternal joy. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So this is just so interesting because, uh, as you saw from one of the margin comments, Luther uh, thought of himself not as uh, restarting the church or even reforming the church. It's interesting. I mean, we have this, we gather up these pictures of Luther, and, but many of them aren't clear or even true. And so uh, you know, Luther has this sense that the stakes are much bigger. It's not about reforming the church. It's getting people ready because the world is so horrible, Christ has to appear at any moment. Now, of course, people have thought that from forever, right? Augustine on his deathbed, the barbarians are at the gate. Uh, he thinks it's the end times. Again and again, people think the, it's the end times, it's the end times. People, you know, my Aunt Mary, when she got a Sears credit card, was 666 on it, was sure it was the end times, okay? <laughs> so, I, you know, I just, you, it is what it is, right? Everybody thinks they're in the end times. I want to then, uh, you know, have, juxtapose that with the other quote from Luther that's in the bulletin this morning where it says, uh, Luther says, and this is really important for pastors, and you have to distinguish the two kingdoms, and you have to think clearly about this, but as a pastor, Luther says, I never did anything by force. And in an age when even pastors, even our pastors at times, are, are given to using force, that's not, my job is not force. You know, my job is to preach the gospel. Luther says, I never did anything by force. I um, preached the gospel, uh, I, I took a swing or two at the Pope, and then I drank Wittenberg beer with my friends. That's what he says. That's the, that's the quote from Luther. I'd call up, you know, Melanchthon and, and, uh, and some of the boys, and we'd have a beer. And then the Lord did it all. And when we resort as pastors to force, then we have lost confidence that the Lord will do it all. Now, that doesn't, there's a whole other discussion about the other kingdom and justice and righteousness and fair play and enforcement and rule of law. That's a whole other conversation. That's not what Luther's talking about. Luther's saying, I myself didn't use force. My job isn't to use force. Some of you are called to use force, nobly, and that's good. We need you. But um, pastors need to be extra careful uh, and not to lose confidence that the Lord can do what he does. So then, um, I want to talk a little bit about pain in the church. I'm sure for many of you this is theoretical. You've never had any troubles in the church, never been to a painful place. Uh, boy, I, I thought you might laugh a little more knowingly. <laughs> it's a great sadness that so many people have suffered at the hands of the church. But um, I want to talk about pain a bit today. And maybe again, because as I wrote kind of offhandedly and I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have put that in. Uh, people who taught me did in fact never teach me to struggle or never taught me how to handle pain or move through pain. Um, I had very good teachers uh, who were quite confident about the Lord's mercy. But the basic steps of moving through pain, if we had just a little more instruction about that or consolation, maybe we could do better. Now, I lead for you though, I lead with you uh, from this bit from Norman Nagel on the front of the bulletin this morning. You know, if God comes first, 
you're in for some struggle and pain. I mean, this, is the, this is the mark of genius in people, where they can just say it. And, and these, sorts of, uh, you know, these sorts of sermons always preach where there's lots of pastors and faculty around. If God comes first, you're in for some struggle and pain. But as you come to know him more fully, for the astonishing God he is, you will come to be grateful for that too. So it was Norman who taught me to say, even my death is a gift and a blessing. When you enlist with Christ, you get more than you bargained for. If you are quite satisfied with yourself and the way that you are managing things, you would be well advised to stay away from Christ. You're really in for something when Christ takes over, when you call him Lord. When you do that, you are on something solid. So today we give thanks to God for what he has done for us here. And we say, we are yours, Lord. Build us solid to you and use us. Now, um, we can say that gladly about Norman because he was first a man among men and second, he proved it out to his last breath. But I think very often in the church, um, we expect things will become pain-free. And really, it's going to be quite the opposite. And then I was nervous two weeks ago when I chatted with you about what's best. And so, and then, then the new members thing. In fact, if anybody's, if you know anybody who's interested in being a member, a new member, you know, it started yesterday. There's always time for people to, you know, come in and it's all recorded and I know people move and such, but I always have the sense that we might be lying to them and that we should move a bit more carefully because what we're asking from people is sacrifice and pain. And so today what I want to talk about is this possibility of how things can be best. You have to pull from two weeks ago about that, how things can be best, but they're not always better, right? And what that means, and Norman sort of encapsulates us there in that little blip from his sermon, you know, take that home and hang it on your wall for your next bad day. So I give you first, you know, this um, bit that I started with last time, that you may be able to discern what is best. Uh, um, and actually, that's, I, I should have put, that's the NIV translation. I use it because, you know, it gets at the American psyche of we always want our best, right? So, you know, you can say that you may be able to discern what is best, but then this, go to church. Why? If our common life in Christ, in the body of Christ, in church, if our common life yields anything, Fill up my cup of happiness by thinking and feeling alike with the same love for one another, the same turn of mind, and a common care for unity. So now we've got a bundle of things. We want the best and we know how to do that, but this is going to be painful. But nevertheless, in the midst of the pain, you can expect happiness and collegiality and love and consensus and unity so how do all those things work together? That's the question. Because sometimes people come to the church. In fact, the worst thing that we can say to people is, if you come to the church, your life will get better. It's almost certain that your life will get worse. It's almost certain. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as C.S. Lewis says, the easiest way to damn a man is to leave him alone. 
right? C.S. Lewis in Screwtape tells a story about the man who wakes up one morning in hell and he just wonders what happened. What happened? How did this happen? Right? And so hell is when you get your way forever. And heaven is when God gets his way forever, right? But God wants to get his way with you right now, right? On earth as the body of Christ for good, for mercy, for justice, for law and gospel. God wants his way right now. So when we baptize a child, for example, we welcome them into the church. They're part of the gang. Here we go. And yet, as Jesus says, my kingdom is otherworldly. So whatever happens inside here at 8.30 and 11 should not look anything like outside here because, as you know, what happens in here is holy. So in the old days, in the old liturgy, um, the bishop would cry out before the Eucharist, the holy things for the holy people of God. And the holy things were the bread, uh, bread body and wine blood of the Eucharist. And they were only meant for those who'd been hallowed, uh, those who'd been baptized. And you remember that's where we started in Philippians 1, to the saints. We slaves, to the saints, and the bishops and the pastors. That's how Paul starts. So we need to figure all this out because otherwise you will get all bollocked up and it'll be a reason for discouragement and even discord among you. And you will think that somebody lied to you along the way or frankly, you'll just give it up. If you don't have the mind of Christ, if you don't think clearly about what happens to you. So um, why go to church? Well, there's a range of good reasons, like point two, it's best. Jesus is here with the holy things, and he is here to give himself to you. So with absolution and with Eucharist and baptism, he touches you. And here, this is the place where you can have your eyes opened, right, and your, your ears uh, unstopped, and your tongue comes free. And so in the old baptismal rite, you know, in Luther's rite, the pastor would spit on his fingers and touch the tongue, Ephetha, just like Jesus did. And he would spit again on his fingers and put him in the child's ear. Be open. And once you get baptized and you're hallowed, now you can speak for Jesus and hear Jesus. Everything gets fixed. That's what happens to you as well. And so then uh, he walks with us, as it were, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus joins us and he sort of checks our fears. You remember how discouraged they were on the way to Emmaus and even afraid they might be next. And memento mori, remember your death. And then remember that your death isn't the last word with you. And so your biggest death is when you got baptized. You die with Jesus there. And out of the water you come and you can live then like those martyrs of Sebaste who, you know, froze to death on the lake rather than capitulate. See, this is all the places we've been now, but we haven't really said that that pain will come to you, but it will. Um, middle of the page, the second page, the quote from Nouwen. This world lies in the power of the evil one. The world does not recognize the light that shines in the darkness. It never did, it never will. John 1. He came to his own and his own knew him not. But to know those who knew him, he gave the power to be sons of God. 
But there are people who, in the midst of the world, live with the knowledge that he is alive, Emmaus, and dwells within us, Pentecost, that he has overcome the power of death, Easter morning, and opens the way to glory, the early church, the rhythm of the Christian life. Christ in scripture and prayer, the liturgy, tithing and alms, a thorough mercy, a winsome witness. Are there people who come around the table and do what he did in memory of him? Well, there were at about 9-11 today. Are there people who keep telling each other stories of hope and together go out and care for their fellow human beings, not pretending to solve all problems, but to bring a smile to a dying man and a little hope to a lonely child? It is so little, so unspectacular, and so hidden, this Eucharistic life, but it is like yeast, like a mustard seed, like a smile on a baby's face. It is what keeps faith, hope, and love alive in a world that is constantly on the brink of self-destruction. Happy Reformation Day, right? Luther wasn't just about preaching the gospel. He was about preaching the gospel toward the end of the world. The thing could go up in smoke at any moment. And it may or it may not, you know. But here's the thing. Even if you knew that it did, and this is the last thing we'll do today, even if you knew the date and the time, today should not be any different for you. If you knew this was your last day on earth, or if you knew this was the last day ever, nothing should be different. You should have a rhythm of prayer and joy and Eucharist and baptism and loving your neighbor as yourself and turning the other cheek and doing good and expecting nothing in return, nothing changes. The whole enterprise of trying to read the future is not very helpful if you're living as a mature Christian because nothing at all changes. You go to church, you go to the Eucharist, you say your prayers, you love your family, you have no enemies, right? So then, we go forward toward what is best. And you remember then, best came to us in three words. Agape, the selfless love of God. So first, what's best is love, selfless love, plus a thorough obedience. And that boils down to touching good and not touching evil. Right? It was this distinction of what's glorious, what's wonderful, what differentiates itself, what is holy. Right, But for that, you need a burgeoning maturity. You need to practice. You get better by practice. You make decisions, you practice, and you learn what's good, and you learn what's evil, and you touch good. So how do you, how do you have the best possible life? You love others selflessly. You figure out, remember we started with this, I said you know, it needs a sieve. You discern what's good and what evil, and you only touch the good and you never touch the evil because you become what you touch. If you touch good in your flesh, you become good. If you touch evil, you become evil incarnate. So you go to the Eucharist and you touch the body and blood of Jesus today and you become the body of Christ. It's not an accident that the scriptures talk that way right? You get baptized and you become part of the body of Christ. You become good. You become holy, understood properly, as in a gift and forgiven and justified and made righteous passive verbs. 
and then you move through life, you touch good and you get gooder. Or you touch evil and you get eviler, right? That's what it is to have the best possible life. And so we know how that works. Uh, if you turn the page, we know how that works because what happens is you get the mind even more. You get the affect of Christ in your own life. So your life can be best. You should aim at what is best. This is best. Love selflessly. Discern what's good and evil. Touch the good, don't touch the evil. That's what we did last time, right? Now, the problem with that is that puts you at odds with a world, as Nouwen said, that is controlled by the evil one. And so, you know, Abba Macarius, uh, you know, <laughs> prayer is war to the last breath, right? And, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, anybody who served at the altar, it's just so interesting. I mean, I've known you a long time. I can sort of tell what's up at the Holy Supper. Some of you are very happy to see me. Some of you don't look up. Some of you are weeping. Some of you got pierced or tatted over the weekend and you didn't tell your parents because they didn't approve, right? Um, there are kids grabbing at it. There are people. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see people sort of on their knees, humbled and completely open to Jesus, right? It's everything is going on all at once. There's always somebody crying at the rail. And yet they're at the rail, touching what's holy, having the best life possible on this earth. So, you know, away with the lie that everything will get better. It won't get better. It will get best, right? It won't be fabulous the way the world measures fabulous, but it will be holy, and that's the place where we started, you recall, with the distinction between human morality and divine holiness. And the problem with our world is that we've settled for human morality. Human morality is a great thing. It keeps the civil peace. It shouldn't be disparaged. It's just that there's another thing from which that civil morality is derived, our Lord who reveals his holiness to us, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, what I want to try to do with this then is to strengthen you for the pain that inevitably comes from being a Christian. And the first way to do that is to let you know that it's coming, right? I, I don't mind bad news, but I hate being surprised with bad news, right? So just have a look at this text. Um, have this mind among yourself, which is Jesus' mind. Have Jesus' mind yourself. Trade your mind for Jesus' mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, given to you as a gift. Now, just so you know what his mind is like, here's what Jesus was like. Though he was in the form of God, or though he was God, God the Father, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the word there for grasp is to hold on for dear life or to reach up to something that maybe doesn't belong to you or that's out of position or not. He didn't think equality with God was a thing that he had to hold on to at all costs. But Jesus emptied himself. Kenosis is the 
kind of word that comes into English there. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That is to say, by taking Adam's form, human form. So we're little brother to the angels. You know, it's the Lord and the angels and us, and then the rest. And being found in human form, he didn't present himself like a Caesar or a king, right? Being found in human form, he humbled himself even farther by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus, like Luther, did not use force. Even death on the cross, humiliating, torturous, naked, and shaming. He did what was best, but it wasn't better, until God has highly exalted him. He's at the right hand today praying for you. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is why we genuflect at the altar. It's not just the name of Jesus being invoked, but his body and blood that comes to sit on the altar. The demons do it. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You think about how painful it must be for um, the demons in hell to have to genuflect every time there's a Eucharist, a baptism, or a prayer said in the name of Jesus. I read in a church father this week who said, you know, every prayer, to, every prayer in Jesus' name slaps the devil in the face. Right? You wonder why he comes for you. Because you poke him in the eye, he's going to poke you back. But God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess. And at some point, it'll be, it's voluntary now. At some point in the last day, it'll be involuntary. Everybody will say, well, that was the name of the game. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, the holiness of the Heavenly Father. So the Lord says to you, you can have the best possible life if you live in love and discernment and obedience, right? It's going to be painful for a while, but people who are mature, like Norman, Dr. Nagel, can say, even my death is a gift and a blessing. Why can he say that? Because at some point, God will exalt Christ, and when God exalts Christ, he exalts you, because you are Christ, Luther. We are little Christ to each other. When Jesus, I'm sorry, when the Heavenly Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. The remarkable stuff. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see you in your sins, he sees Jesus in his holiness. When the Heavenly Father looks at you, he sees the Eucharist inside. So why people wouldn't go to the Eucharist is simply beyond me. Read the last chapter of Revelation. Who are these people? These are they, about verse 12, who bear the name of Jesus on their forehead. And the Heavenly Father looks to sort sheep from goats. He looks for the brand on your forehead. The name of Jesus, if you've been baptized into the name of Jesus. That's what marks you as his own. He looks at you and sees Jesus because of your baptism. He looks at you and sees Jesus because of the Holy Eucharist. There's no way that Jesus could abandon you. There's no way the Father could condemn you. There's no way that you could be lost. You can never say, 
I'm alone and unloved, you can never despair because it's not true. Here is Jesus' gift to you, his mind for naos. You know this from, you know, phronesis or the English words that come in. So in Jesus, we learn to think. With baptism and scripture and Holy Eucharist, he gives us his mind, right? He teaches us to think and more to focus, right? So this word for neo, his mind sort of is like, in Hebrew, you know, you can't sort of tear the body and the soul and the mind apart. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, what he's saying is, with all your bits. If you break it into 10 bits, it's all 10 bits. If you make it two bits, it's two bits. However many bits you say it is, love the Lord your God with all you've got. That's for neo. That's the mind of Jesus, that he would be a servant, that he would do anything, that he would incarnate, that he would go to the cross, that he'd do that for you. That's the mind you have. And this is why it makes complete sense then that you turn the other cheek and uh, that you would um, give and expect nothing in return, right? That's the mind. Everything is connected there. But he you're, you're meant to exercise that not in power, I know more than you do. I'm better than you are. I'm smarter, more discerning. That's the way of pride. It's to be exercised in humility, right? And humility has a couple of components to it. We've talked about it in the past, but one thing is, is that um, we're willing to empty ourselves for others just as Jesus does. And we're also willing to obey our Heavenly Father even when we don't understand. And you, I just, you know, most people are done in by their disagreements with God. So faith agrees and unfaith disagrees. So we think we have a better idea. Startling how quickly Aaron capitulates to the golden calf crowd got a better idea, right? It's startling how Israel turns away, but we don't have to go that far. It's startling how, you know, nine lepers go their own way and don't come back. Where, where, I thought, that, I thought I healed 10. I must've got my math wrong. Be the Thanksgiving text. But I mean, we don't have to go that far. You just look at yourself. Every sin is, I have a better idea than God. Here, the gift of Christ is, that he gives you not only a mind, but a will. That he not only gives you thinking, but doing. That he not only gives you the distinction between good and evil, but the humility to follow good. And this is the great uh, challenge of the Christian life. You follow places where you would rather not go. You know, and so, so the prophecies about, you know, what'll happen? Well, they'll bind you up and take you places you don't go. And then about the other apostle, they say, what about this one? And Jesus says, well, that'll be up to the Heavenly Father. So, Jesus gives you his mind and his humility and his death and, hold on, his exaltation, which includes his resurrection and his place at the right hand of God. So, you know, this week we had a lot of deaths in the congregation. We've had... I've had friends, two fathers have died this week. We've had some aunts and uncles die. We've had young 19-year-old uh, girl die. We're praying for that family this morning. You know, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a week of death uh, among uh, people that we know. And yet, 
on the far side of that, even with things that we don't understand, as the last prayer in the funeral service says, the last, and give us strength in the face of things we cannot understand. Why? To do what you ask us to do. If you were kind enough to come along uh, yesterday to the new members thing, you got the next text from Romans 6. And anybody who's been here for a while, I've done this periodically because it's a seminal text <clears throat> for how we think. Um, if you came yesterday, hold on, I'm going to do a different section of it. But first I want to tell you a story. William Willimon, who was uh, dean of the chapel at Duke and fabulous for a bunch of reasons, um, once told a story about being in Central America where he saw baptism in a small village. And the tradition there was not cameras, not celebration, you know, not grinning from ear to ear. They brought the baby to the font in a coffin as the parents wept. Right? Imagine if we offered that here. <laughs> we could cut baptisms by 90%. <laughs> so first put your baby in the coffin. Because you see, there's something genius about that, right? Talk about setting expectations so that you can exceed them. Under promise and over deliver. Yes. Right? If you start with the notion that what you do when you're baptized is die, then everything else is going to be upside. Right? And that, of course, is what happens in this text. You're used to this if you've been around, but I want to do the second half. What are we going to do? We're going to keep sinning? No, don't you know that when you got baptized, you were, and this is really important, verse 5, you were united with Jesus, right? Joined to Jesus, you were united with Jesus. As Luther says, you were cemented to Jesus. As I've said to you, when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus, he doesn't see you. You can say it any way you want. Easter Vigil, your fate is tied to Jesus. You were in the garden. You went through the Red Sea. You were in the fiery furnace. You were on the cross, right? You were resurrected. Don't you know that you died with Jesus? Don't you know you were buried with Jesus? Don't you know you were raised with Jesus? Don't you know you were exalted with Jesus? Don't you know that you live a new life with Jesus? Don't you know? Everybody knows this, don't you know? Of course you know this, you were baptized, you know this. We talked about this, right? That's the first part of this text from sort of one to five. But maybe beyond that, verse 6, we know, for now, right? We know, because we have the mind of Christ, we know that our old self was crucified with him. So you should discern, right? Sift, sieve. You should now separate things that are good and bad. We know that our old self was crucified with him. So we don't want to take that back. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I was once in private confession with a man. It's terrible. Um, pornography trouble, and um, talked a long time, and then he said, kind of at the end, so what you're telling me is that my sins just aren't good for me. I'm like, as a matter of fact, that is what I'm telling you. <laughs> your sins aren't good for you. I'm telling you that too, and me too. You know what, your, your sins aren't good for you. That's what the text says, your sins aren't good for you. In fact, they're so bad, they got nails put through them, right? They're so bad that 
The Father killed them in the Son on the cross. Or as Luther says in the Catechism, every day starts with murder, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with that you drowned your old Adam, right? If you're a Christian, every day starts with murder. You murder the old Adam. Now he comes back, as Luther says, he's a very good swimmer, right? So you <laughs> hold him under and then the next day he pops up. Okay, well this is the, this, I said it was better, not, you know, I said it was best, not better, okay? So we know our old self was crucified with him in order that sin might be nothing. And so if you walked into a congregation there, you should be able to say, that place, sin is nothing, right? So we should be looking around going, huh, I don't see any sin here. Fabulous, it must be a church. Imagine if people talk that way. And then think on the other side of all the things the church has to answer for. And all the things that the church needs to be ashamed of. Right? So, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, we're free. You have a choice, you have a new will. Right? In the old days, you could only choose sin. Now you're baptized. Now you have a double choice. You can choose holiness or you choose sin. Right? Your choice. Because you have Christ's mind and Christ's will and Christ's humility and Christ's obedience, which gives you the possibility to choose for Christ, even though it's Reformation Day, or because it's Reformation Day, understand this properly. I'm not saying you're deciding for your salvation. This is a sanctification point. You're dead into the font. You're alive when you come out. That's why uh, uh, sometimes you, the, um, uh, you, you, the, the, the font is described as a tomb. You're put into there and you come out and now you have another possibility. Your other possibility is the mind of Christ. And as Paul says, you should have the mind of Christ. You should agree with Christ. You should choose with Christ. You should follow Christ. You should walk with Christ to Emmaus. You should let Mary put the Pieta in your hands and have him at the Holy Eucharist. You should do as Jesus asked. When Paul says, imitate me the way I imitate Christ, do that. When Jesus says, follow me, do that. In saying, do that, I'm not saying to you, do something horrible. I'm saying, do what is best, even though it's going to be painful. And you should expect that in advance, right? The, the death he died, he died to sin, right? So, verse 8. We've died with Christ. We believe that we'll live. So we know our old self was crucified, verse 5. We believe that we can live with Christ. We know that Christ was raised from the dead. We know that death doesn't have dominion over him or over us. We consider ourselves dead to sin. There it is right there. So when the choice is between good and evil, sin is dead to me and Christ is alive to me. Choose life, choose Christ, follow Jesus, Emmaus Road, Holy Supper, Holy Baptism, Holy Word, Holy Community. This is the reason you go to church. Don't let sin reign. Make it your goal to obey, right? Don't present your members to sin. He's saying the same thing over and over and over again, which is don't touch sin. For sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So best for Jesus is very painful. It means he gets crucified, right? And that's very, very, very difficult. I got up early and added four pages to this this morning that you don't have because I thought, 
There's probably not. I woke up in the middle of the night and I said, you know, I just don't. This is true. I, I was like, ugh. I reset my alarm and got up because I thought, oh, yeah, there's not enough. Other weeks you get 10 pages. You only have like six pages. I thought, I didn't want to come back and be a schlub. So, you know, here it is. We're going to come back to uh, what's on, under page four a little bit next week. But before you, under point four, but before we do this, I just, I, I just, you know, this is, sometimes we act as if um, this part of the Reformation that didn't go quite as well, which is sometimes the baby went out with the bathwater. For the last year, I've been reading uh, in the morning about a saint or two. And one of the startling things about the saints is how much they suffered. I mean, it's not just the famous ones, you know, skinned alive, St. Bartholomew, or, you know, burned at the stake. You know, it's not just that stuff, but just the challenges that people would have, you know, you're too dumb to go to seminary, and they leave him out um, as the doorkeeper, but then everybody who walk, brushes into him as they enter the monastery seems to get healed, you know. Or, or um, you know, uh, the family won't, uh, a, a woman wants to, you know, take a vow and the family marries her off in political ways two or three times. And it's always interesting how like husbands die and then finally at 50 she becomes, you know, this famous person who only helps the poor. Or people who give away all that they have. Or the last thing we're not going to get to is a quote from Chrysostom. Chrysostom was, Chrysostom was golden tongue. Chrysostom was such a good preacher that literally, this is true, they used to post notices against pickpockets when he preached. Because people would cram together so closely to hear him, and he was so enthralling, they're like, watch your wallet, okay? <laughs> this is true. And he had the job. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. And the Empress was a libertine. And he had the poor judgment if you run things in terms of being better, of saying it out loud. And she exiled him for the last 10 years of his life. He had the greatest possible job, and because he said things that were true, his life was best but not better. So one of the things, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that I came to this so late in my life, and um, you know, one of the things we could have done better is to learn from the people who went before us about how to have a common life in Christ. I want to just, I want to finish because we got to go. One of the things, um, I want to say this, I'm going to go to number five and read you this bit and then we're going to quit. I just, I want to try to encourage you in this because we think, or you think, or maybe it's just me who thinks this, that if, you know, I know enough and do enough and am enough and hear enough and this enough, it's all going to be okay and, and the pain will diminish. That is not always true. And I always think if I just knew what was coming and could like step out of the way or maybe make a step here when I should have, so I don't step there. But just read this last bit from somebody who's smart. One of the many limitations that come with the territory of being human is that we don't know the future. I've come to see that it's a mark of the Lord's love and wisdom that what lies ahead remains larger hidden from us. That's very difficult. I would like to know ahead and plan ahead. 
Naturally, no one minds being surprised by joy, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis. Unexpected crosses, on the other hand, are generally less welcome, the pain of walking with Jesus. Yet, carrying our cross is how we work out the task planned for us by the Father, wrote Father Peregrine. Other people's crosses often look attractive. We all do that, right? I could make it that my trouble is much bigger than but the one the Father gives us is our very own. See, if you could think about it that way, the trouble you have today, the pain, whatever you were weeping about at the Eucharist, that's yours and nobody else's. Each of us is called, in the unique circumstances of our own life, to carry the cross in union with Jesus. You see that? That's just what we said. You, don't you know you're united, united with Christ? It's Romans 6, verse 5. If we saw ahead of time, however, in one sudden and simple vision, all of life's crosses, we would be overwhelmed. Such knowledge is well above our pay grade. Humankind cannot bear very much reality, as T.S. Eliot put it. Instead, and this is what I'm trying to talk you into, by giving us life one day at a time, Jesus, let the day's own troubles be sufficient for the day. The Lord invites us, walk with me, Emmaus Road, into a relationship of trust. I know where I'm going. It's going to be okay. Rooted in the conviction that he guides us, follow me, and will not allow anything to happen to thwart his love. What will separate us from the love of Christ, St. Paul asked. I can't improve upon the words of Father Perquin, so I conclude with a quotation that I hope encourages you as it does me. Our cross is usually given to us in installments. Weighing differently at different times, it is made up of small cells, little fatigues, worries, and things that go wrong. We cannot see the proper shape yet, partly because we are too close. And then the diagnosis. In our self-pity, we see each other, we see each little bit magnified and distorted. And anyhow, our loving Father will not let us see it as a whole yet. We would think it too big and heavy, and so lose courage. But we can carry our own little crosses, our little parts of the cross, and trust that in doing so, we're growing like our Master, that one day we will resemble Him, glorified as He is in heaven, with His cross. And this is really important, that Jesus still has His wounds, and His wounds are glorified. Okay, thanks. We got to go. Love you. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, happy Reformation Day. Love you. See you at the altar.